in Japan, everything is komakai. So everything is ultra detailed. It's great, but it also means that things take a really long time because everything has to be done in the right order. Everything has to be done exactly the way it is supposed to be done. And all of that can be really frustrating. You walk in, you submit your document, then you're missing something. You basically go back to the beginning or it's like, ah, oh, sorry, we can't help you. Go figure that out and submit it the way it's supposed to be submitted. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Business Success Japan podcast. This is your host, Lydia Bikleman. This podcast is made for those who want to develop or strengthen the communication skills, cultural savvy, insights into current trends and conditions, and mindsets that are essential in a Japanese business environment. The helpful, practical suggestions and engaging insights offered here provide listeners with the in depth cultural context needed to achieve their own version of success while collaborating with Japanese counterparts. In today's episode, I get to share a conversation I had with Menya Hinga. Menya is an American who moved to Japan over a decade ago, who now works as a health and performance coach to high performers who are struggling to manage stress and weight gain, learn to eat better, move more, and stress less in order to transform their health and performance. We'll hear more about his journey from teaching to entrepreneurship later on in the interview, so be sure to listen in to learn more. But first, let's go over a little bit of Japanese. In the previous episode, I introduced the word senpai. Se, n, pa, i, senpai. A senpai is typically someone who's your senior or ahead of you at work or school. While you may already be familiar with the term, it's worth being aware of the influence the concept can have on the power dynamics in Japanese society, as well as the benefits that can come with cultivating good relationships in a culturally appropriate way with your senpai in the workplace. A word that Menya brings up in today's interview is the adjective, komakai. 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 Komakai itself can be defined in many different ways. Small, fine, trivial, sensitive, and careful are some examples. In today's episode, however, komakai is used to refer to small details, and especially ones that seem trivial at times. While Japan can be notorious for its attention to detail, be sure to listen in to learn more about some challenges this focus can have for people trying to start a business in Japan. My name is Menya Hinga.、Uh, I am from outside of Boston, Massachusetts. I've lived here in Japan for the past 12 years, and I work as a health and performance coach. Great. So, how did you end up in Japan in the first place? Uh, I will try to give you the short stories <laughs> for all of these. So, the, the short story is that I had always wanted to visit Japan just because of the, I think, allure of the Far East. And so, when I was graduating from college, I wanted to take a year between graduation and attending law school. And so, I wound up coming to Japan to teach for a seven month or on a seven month contract that ended up turning into. <laughs> 12 years in Japan. That's the really short story. <laughs> and it happens quite a bit where people think they're coming to Japan for one or two years and end up starting a life there. So, exactly, exactly. Could you go a little bit more in depth into what you're doing now specifically? Yes.、Yeah, so, I worked as a personal trainer in Tokyo starting in 2011. And I was essentially what I, what I now call a, a traveling trainer. So, I was running around to different locations, whether it was 
public gyms, private gyms, parks, uh, people's residences, all of the place, office offices where they had you know free space for us to do things, especially the bigger offices, a lot of the multinationals. And I loved that work, but it was not scalable as an individual. And so over the past two years, I have probably, I mean, longer than that realistically, but over the past two years, I've fully transitioned online where I'm able to work with clients in just far greater detail and able to get them honestly even better results than I was when I was working as a traveling trainer, simply because we can dive into so many of the other aspects that as a personal trainer, at least in my capacity in the past, I wasn't able to. So I now essentially help high performers either in Tokyo or abroad who want to get fit, avoid the frustration of trial and error by basically teaching them exactly what they need to know to accomplish their fitness goals. And those goals vary depending on the person, but for most people, it's probably losing a bit of fat mass or, or toning up. In other words, um, building some muscle, feeling less stress, maybe trying to get better sleep and generally speaking, just feel better in their own skin. So again, in this capacity as an online coach, specifically a health and performance coach, I find that I'm much better able to do that by educating people and then creating structured accountability for them. All of that is super interesting, but I would like to go a little bit more in depth into what was it like to move your business online? Were there any challenges that you weren't expecting? Of course, everybody was facing challenges at that time, at the same time, actually. So what was that transition like for you? So I moved my, my plan in 2019 was to move my business online by January 1st of 2020. And fortunately I did. (laughs) So I missed the pandemic, like online rush by two months out of pure coincidence. I had just decided in 2019 that it was going to happen in 2020. And then January 1st was my day. So I launched my new website, threw up a YouTube video, all that kind of social media stuff probably between January 1st and January 5th. And so by the time the pandemic hit, I had already planned to be online. So it wasn't, it didn't really impact what I was doing other than the fact that everyone else moved online. And then people who previously were not looking for help online began looking for help online. So in terms of the greatest struggle moving online, I think it would come down to the fact that there's so much preparation required. I think when you work as a personal trainer, you meet a client and you, assuming you've met them before, you know what it is you're going to be doing in general. And if you're a good trainer, you know what their needs are, uh, you know what their limitations are. And so even, even if you didn't have a structured plan for that day going into the session, you could very quickly adapt to what's going on, especially like, for example, in a group setting, if I had four people at a boot camp, which I did, I had those kinds of groups as well. I could kind of just show up with my equipment and make it work based on the number of people, et cetera. Online, it's different. <laughs> Everything, there's just a lot more preparation and because so much of it is education-based, there's a lot more, again, prep. And so I think going into it, there was just a lot of creation And now, again, about two years in, what I love about being online is actually that same process. Because it requires so much preparation, there's so much content and course material that I have for people. And so it's just so much more effective the longer I do it. 
And that's one of the things I love most about it, but it's also one of the things that makes the transition really challenging, mm -hmm. at least in my space. Well, I'm glad that you had already successfully made the transition before. <laughs> Very lucky. <laughs> Very lucky. So you work with people, or you have worked mostly with people in the Tokyo area, so with Japanese natives, but many of your clients are also expats living in Japan or yes. Tokyo as well. So have you noticed in your work any common themes when it comes to difficulties that foreigners face in Japan? especially with their health and fitness? Yes, absolutely. The most common reality for expats living in Japan is that they know what healthy eating is. I have yet to work with an expat who, any, actually not even in Japan, but anywhere, Singapore, Hong Kong, anywhere, who is unaware of what eating healthily or exercising regularly or getting good sleep looks like. All of them know that, but because of any number of factors from family to just extremely high stress, high you know, long work hours, whatever the, whatever that, that reason is, uh, those things end up not panning out the way they'd like. And so what we do is actually just sit down and say, okay, what does your schedule look like? What, number one, what is your goal? And then what does your schedule look like? What are your preferences? What have you tried in the past? What was successful? What was on? We run through the gamut of questions uh, around all of that. And then what I do is I look for little openings and I say, okay, it looks like we might have a little opening here. What would you think about doing this, you know, at this time or on this day? And then we just kind of find those openings. And sometimes we have to actually create them. Uh, we have to just make space. And through doing that, those small, you could call them changes or shifts are really what make the difference between not being active and feeling, you know, crappy in your own skin to feeling much, much better, although you're not necessarily putting in a ton of hours into this new, you know, health journey, fitness journey. It doesn't require a tremendous amount of time, but it does require diligence and it does require planning. And so that's really what we do is kind of come together and figure out how, based on what you've got going on, how are we going to make this work? I'm not sure if that's specific enough, but basically <laughs> the problems people face, especially those who live in Japan, tend to be quite similar. And another common one is uh, people not uh, people adjusting to a new style of life or a, you know an entirely new lifestyle because of the either the lifestyle they now live living in a city like Tokyo, or specifically because of, for example, the food choices that are available or not available as a result of living in Tokyo. So a lot of what we do as well is focus on nutrition because for a lot of people, like I said, they know what eating healthily is, but they may not be aware that, for example, the way they're eating is not well suited for their goals. And then again, by making small shifts, they're able to kind of align themselves with what it is they actually want. And then you know, make small steps towards accomplishing whatever those goals are. Mm -hmm. Thank you for breaking that down for us. Yes. This is just a little bit of a tangent for me where I am actually about to move to Japan myself. And exactly. one of the concerns is obviously finding clothes in Japan as a Western woman with different sizing. Mm -hmm. And I had to try to explain to people that I can't just buy a bunch of clothes before I move to Japan because my body will change. 
And I don't yet know in what way, <laughs> but when your <laughs> lifestyle changes, the food changes, the amount yes. of movement you have in a day changes, yes. your body just inevitably follows. So I can exactly see how that. it would be invaluable to have someone <laughs> kind of exactly walk you through that. that transition. Exactly that. And so I'm working with two people right now in particular, one I just started working with two weeks ago. Um, she's from France and that's exactly <laughs> what's going on in that, um, and in, in, in her situation, there's another guy who had just started working recently as well, who's in a similar spot. But for, yeah, in terms of clientele, it's a number of people who have lived here for a long time and then people who are who have recently moved here. But your situation is a really common situation uh, with lots of people. Maybe they've lived here for a few months and suddenly I get contacted by them. And they say, like, hey, I've been trying to make this work and it's just not. <laughs> so uh, can you help? And yeah, the concerns you have are completely valid if it's of any uh, consolation, you actually nailed probably the three things that are, or, you know, three of the things that are quite relevant, which is how much you move. So a lot of the people who move here suddenly go from maybe being active in a certain way to not being as active in the same ways. That's going to have an impact on your body composition, your weight, how you feel, et cetera, energy levels. And then food, that's obviously going to have an impact on that. And then again, like work stress, if that you know, happens to be different or increase when you get here, those three factors alone, food, exercise, and stress are going to have a pretty big impact on uh, how you look and feel. So the fact that you're cognizant of those coming into the move, I think you're already going to be better kind of positioned than maybe others who haven't put as much thought into, okay, how am I going to stay active in the way that I am now when I go there so that I don't, you know, balloon <laughs> or just start to feel bad and yeah, that, that's a good first step is just putting some thought into it. Mm -hmm. Having some awareness is the key, even if that awareness is just knowing that you don't know exactly, exactly. how things exactly. are going to turn out. <laughs> exactly. So can you tell us then a little bit more about what the health and nutrition scene looks like in Japan? If that's mm. not too broad of a topic. Obviously, you're probably most familiar with how it is in Tokyo, which mm. I'm not sure how much of a variety there is in different parts of Japan, but could you speak to that a little bit? Sure. One of the interesting things about, this is a tangent, but one of the interesting things about living in Tokyo is when conducting these kinds of interviews, you then get put in the position of speaking on behalf of the country, <laughs> which I find so interesting. What I'll do is I'll speak to what I know to be true uh, here in Tokyo based on my experience, and I'll try my best not to speak on behalf of the country because there is a lot, there's a tremendous amount that I don't know because I'm not a native Japanese speaker and I don't spend much time looking through or reading or listening to what's going on in the Japanese sphere. So that's actually a, probably a big part of this answer. To be fair, there's there's likely a bunch going on, uh, a whole lot. In fact, the majority of what is going on in Tokyo is going on in Japanese. And I speak pretty good Japanese, but I just don't have as um, clear access to that world as I do in English. On a positive note, a lot of the advancements that are made in terms of um, health, wellness, fitness, nutrition come from the West. And so a lot of that knowledge that's kind of coming over here to Japan and then being uh, kind of propagated or spread, a lot of that comes from other places. So I think if there's an advantage, it's having kind of immediate access to that kind of information, whether it's journals or 
you know, just even anecdotal information from abroad. So anyways, in terms of a more clear answer, I think as it comes to health and nutrition and, and fitness in general, Japan is behind and Japan is typically behind in, in many different ways. For example, banking in Japan is probably, <laughs> you know, it, it's a, it's not where it is in other developed nations, just because Japan is very risk averse and very, very slow. And this probably relates to something we would end up talking about later, but when it comes to you know, business development in Japan, you know, things take a lot of time. Um, relationships are really important. I'm sure other people you've spoken to have said uh, something similar, but things also just take a tremendous amount of time. And uh, I mean, things always take longer than you think they will take in Japan that is amplified x-fold <laughs> so um so i think when it comes to health and fitness and nutrition it's not where it is in the west but as somebody from the west here that also presents an interesting opportunity to not necessarily be first to market but to be early in a space that's not yet as saturated as it is for example in america or in uk or um, or, you know, other English speaking countries of which there are obviously plenty. So one of the responsibilities I feel like I have is to help grow that space here in Japan, specifically in Tokyo. And so one of the ways in which I've done that is myself and a couple of other friends about five and a half years ago started running these free boot camps outdoors uh, at Yogi Park. That has since turned into an organization called Sogo Fitness. Sogo Fitness is basically a volunteer fitness community that does a variety of different events around the city, ranging from boot camps to yoga to aqua yoga, several run groups, a swim club, etc. So they have something like 11 events that run every week that are completely uh, the, the instructors are volunteers and the people who participate either don't pay anything like at Yogi Park or pay very little if it's in a studio because we're essentially not a uh, for-profit organization. So that's a way in which I feel like as a Westerner, I've been able to take boot camp culture from the States and introduce it here in Japan in a way that has benefited people without really you know, costing them a whole bunch. We, we definitely could have charged for that. And you know we thought about doing that in the beginning, but we decided not to because we didn't want to turn it into a business. We wanted to just turn it into a way of sharing what we love with people. And then separately, obviously, I, I had my own personal training business and you know was doing other things. So to make a long story short, the industry is not nearly as mature as it is in the West. And as a foreigner living here, that presents a lot of interesting opportunities. Mm -hmm. So moving away from the business side for just a minute, could you tell us a little bit about what it means to you to have a more holistic approach to health? Yes, yes. When, perfect, I, I got into this a little bit earlier, but when I worked as a PT, I loved what I did and I love the face-to-face -face time. I love interacting with people. I genuinely love helping people uh, learn about their bodies and you know what's best for them and uh, uh, movement patterns, improving posture, all that stuff. It's, it's amazing. I, I really enjoy it. I loved that aspect of PT, but what I really enjoy about what I do now, and as it, it's, it's built into the, the title of the, my primary program, it's the holistic fitness program, is I love being able to look at all the different elements that impact health and then figure out, like I said earlier, where we can 
find space or make space uh, for, for little shifts that in the short run may not have massive impacts, but in the long run can have just absolutely remarkable impacts on people's health and, and happiness and overall well-being. well-being. So, and that encompasses a, a lot of different things, which is yeah, basics from time management, um, stress and de-stress, recovery, which includes sleep, but as well as other things, uh, whether that's like foam rolling or stretching, et cetera, strength training and development, nutrition itself. There's just so much, there's so much in there. And uh, now again, working as an online coach, we can really get into all of that. Whereas again, as a PT, we're just limited by time. If you've got 60 minutes to work with someone in that 60 minute window, you know, while they're squatting, it's a bit hard to talk about <laughs> the other stuff in, in, in a meaningful way. And so working as a health coach really allows me to look at the big picture and then find little areas of improvement and then tackle those one by one. And that's what I love about this whole process. Do you have any examples that come to mind for those small changes that have big impacts, those little uh, moments where you can find or make space for those changes? Yeah, I'll give you an example. So for, as an example, uh, there's a woman I started working with about two months ago. She's fully Japanese, but she's probably, she communicates very well in English, but she's born and raised here. And she works in the recruitment space. And that's probably why she, her English is as good as it is. But anyways, so with her, what we did is when we started, she was not act, uh, not really active. She was walking a bit but she knew she was eating poorly. She's a, a lot heavier than she knows she is supposed to be. And so one of our major goals is to help her get off uh, a lot of the weight that she's carrying that she's been you know, also told by doctors she should really get off of uh, her body. And so the first thing we did then is run through, I mean, I've got all kinds of questionnaires and worksheets and course material, but basically we took one of the questionnaires that I had her do and we, we actually just looked at like the time management side of that. And what we did is we broke down where it is in each day uh, she does whatever she does. So in the morning, what's her morning routine? Uh, and then when does she start work and what does that look like? What's her lunchtime routine? What's her, um, her evening routine? We were able to, we, we quickly realized in that one consultation we did about basically time management that she actually had a really good chunk of time, both in the morning and the evening to be active and to prepare for what was going to happen during the day. But because like most people, she was on autopilot, she didn't of her own volition dive into those little pockets and kind of carve them out the way that they could be. So it took us sitting down, mapping it all out and then realizing, okay, you actually do have an hour here that you could use to do you know, X. And then in the afternoon, you've got a little window where you can do Y and then in the evening, you've got actually a pretty good chunk of time, a lot of which has been going to Netflix and other random stuff. And you can still, you can still do those things, but if we just adjust a little bit, you can actually carve out 45 minutes to, you know, do that evening walk with your partner, which she likes to do. So now we've got this you know, morning activity time, which is sometimes a walk, sometimes it's exercise. We've got this little afternoon block where she's essentially building in this 30 minutes of de-stressing, which is a variety of different things for her ranging from, walking to stretching to any number of things because she works from home. And then the evening, she's got this other pocket of time. And so in, in her case, we didn't really create anything. 
we just looked at what was already there and then better utilized it. And in her case, in, in this case, we're talking about time. Uh, and so when it comes to, again, that's like on the time management side, when it comes to nutrition, the same rules apply. So we look at, okay, what are you normally eating in a day? You know, breakfast, lunch, dinner, great. Are you snacking? Yes, I tend to snack between breakfast and lunch. And I tend to snack, you know, maybe, you know, after I've eaten dinner, before I go to bed. They say, okay, and you actually, you lay all that out. We look at it and we say, okay, um, you're probably not going to suddenly just stop snacking. So we're not going to just tell you not to snack. Instead, what are you snacking on? Okay, I'm snacking on chocolate and cheese. Like, like okay, that's that's not that's not awful. But is there is there other maybe some substitutes we could throw in there, even just a few times a week to offset the amount of chocolate and cheese you're consuming? Like, great, you know, I really like carrots and and I also like hummus. Excellent. Maybe we could throw in carrots and hummus or you know, do, do you like this? Yeah, there's so many different options you can throw in, in just the snacking world and then meals themselves. How do we take what you've been eating and just improve it a little bit? Um, not go from what you're eating to, you know, no carbohydrates, but how do we just make a really small shift to take it from wherever it is now to something slightly better? Um, because it's, it's really those small steps forward that when you look at it a month later, you realize like, oh, I've actually walked a mile and it's, you know, it's, it's been a month, but you've only taken tiny steps to, to get there. So we do that, as you mentioned earlier on the holistic side, we do that in a, just a myriad of ways. One of them, one of the big ones ends up being time management. Again, with all the people I work with is just how do we find pockets that you maybe didn't realize are there and better utilize them. And then it becomes about looking at nutrition, sleep and exercise. Those are probably kind of the the big ones. And then depending on what the person's interested in doing, it may encompass other things, but that's typically on the kind of health and fitness side where we spend most of our time. So then can you tell us a little bit more about your experiences as a foreign founder in Japan? You touched on yes. some of the pain points such as mm. banking, but <laughs> yeah, anything exactly. else come to mind? Uh, documents. So <laughs> when I started my company, which is Future Fitness, uh, Future Fitness Incorporated, one of the, one of the, the scariest things actually, scary is the wrong word, but one of the most daunting elements of starting a company in Japan is not knowing what exactly is required to start a company in Japan. <laughs> And, and the reason is because there are so many um, just anecdotal experiences that are out there that you'll ask one person and get an answer, and then you ask a different person and get an answer. And so the way that I went about it, and this is how I'd encourage anyone who's serious about starting a business in Japan uh, to go about it, is to find, basically find an attorney and just go that route. <laughs> uh, I have friends who have done it on their own, and I have others who have gone the attorney route, and I chose to explore the route of doing it on my own and then use an attorney. <laughs> it's just smoother and easier, and it saves you the frustration of missing a document or writing something wrong and redoing your articles of incorporation or you know any of those <laughs> number of things. So I, anyways, I went that route and that was one of the best possible moves I can, I can think of. And now when anyone talks to me about how to start a company in Japan or um, what's necessary, the first thing I tell them is number one, you should just go and find a lawyer and um, sit down with that person. And if nothing else, you know, do a consultation so you actually learn specifically what you will need to, to start your company. 
Uh, it's just faster and easier. Um, additionally, and so on a more micro level, I think there's a word in Japanese called komakai. And a, a komakai essentially just means um, detail. So in Japan, there are everything is komakai. So everything is ultra detailed. And actually, as a very detailed, structured person, I love that about Japan. It's, it's great. But it also means that, like I said earlier, things take a really long time because everything has to be done in the right order. Everything has to be done exactly the way it is supposed to be done. And all of that can be really frustrating, especially coming from the States where I might walk into the office or, you know, some, some space and say, Hey, I've got these documents, but I don't have that. Like, you know, I didn't fill out one. Oh, you know, could you help me just fill it out? And the person's like, Oh, sure. They'll kind of just help you through it. That's not really how it works in Japan. If you, you walk in, you submit your documents and you're missing something, you kind of, you basically go back to the beginning or it's like, ah, oh, sorry, we can't help you go figure that out and submit it the way it's supposed to be submitted. And so as a result of that, and you know, I've lived here long enough when I started my company to know that that was going to happen. So once I decided I was going to start it, I didn't really waste too much time figuring out all those things on my own because it would have just led to frustration and lost time. And again, just hired a <laughs> lawyer to help with the process. Additionally, and this might be helpful, when I started my company, I wasn't married. So in order to stay in the country, I would have, I needed a visa. And in order to get a visa with my own company, I had to self-sponsor, which means that my company had to sponsor my own visa. And that adds an additional layer of complication, technically, if you're interested in coming to Japan and starting a business. Uh, if you're married, it's no problem. Congratulations, you have a visa because you're married. If you are a Japanese national because your parents were Japanese, I think that word, or if you have a passport, basically, then a Japanese passport, then you're okay. But if you're essentially like me and you are operating off of a variety of different work visas and suddenly you want to start your own business, you absolutely can and you absolutely can self-sponsor. But that self-sponsoring uh, adds on other responsibilities or more specifically obligations, like having an actual office somewhere. That office can be tiny, but you do need a space. And so those kinds of, again, komakai things exist depending on what you're trying to do. So myself, I needed both to start a company and I needed to sponsor my visa. So I kind of went all in and that's why I just felt like it was going to be easier to do with a lawyer to not have to worry about missing something and then not getting a visa and then, you know, it getting complicated. Right. And especially if you are interested in self-sponsoring a visa, it's probably worthwhile to go the lawyer route <laughs> if that's exactly. possible. But do you have any other requirements that you can remember that it took to self-sponsor your visa? Yeah. So the big ones were basically, you have to start a company that in itself requires articles of incorporation. You get a hunko, there's a bunch of stuff. Uh, you also need to get a bank account and the order in which you do that is again, its own kind of komakai process. But on the uh, getting a visa side, the requirements I remember were, it's been a while, but, and now that I'm married, it's different, but Essentially, you have to have an office. That's the one thing I remember as being a, the big difference between just starting a company and having an office. Additionally, I wanted to start a Kabushi Gaisha, which is essentially the same kind of company. It's like an LLC. It's the same kind of company as you know, any of the like, massive multinationals. They might be, I think it's, what is it, Gaku Gaisha? Uh, There's two, there are two kinds of I don't, big companies. I think one's a Godo Gaisha and one's a Kabushi Gaisha. The, the G one I could be getting wrong. Something 
think it's Golo Gaisha. And so in my case, I wanted to start a proper company. So I started a Kabushi Gaisha, which is um, a company with shares. And, and that's one of the ways in which, again, you can self-sponsor. So started that and then got the office. And I think those are really the, the two, yeah, the two big requirements is having a company, having an office. Um, again, the order of operations matters because you can't get the company office without having the company, but then like you can't, I don't know what it was. I didn't, again, I didn't have to do this on my own, but there was a very specific order to the whole thing because you can't do some things without the other. For example, you like can't actually start the company without a bank account, but you can't start a company bank account without details of having a company because then it would be undermining. So like that was in itself complicated. So I think you had to, ooh, the order, I don't remember, but it was something like I had to maybe submit documents for my company. And then before it was registered as a company, I had to then take proof of submission of documents to the bank to prove to the bank that I was starting a company so that they would give me an account. And then I had to submit that I had applied for the bank account to the office that was going to help complete my company details kind of thing. Like those kinds of Komakai things were very much happening at that time. But in terms of self-sponsoring to keep it simple, you basically just need an office. Good to know. But also you need a specialist because even if you're fluent in Japanese or exactly. there's a certain amount of expertise that's required to do it. Totally. Totally. And well, honestly, first time. exactly. And I, like I said, I have friends who didn't do it with attorneys, but their experience was exactly what I told you of dealing with all this, messing up this thing, going back, document this, that, and the other. And so it's just, it's going to cost you probably anywhere between on the low end, I'd say like three to 5k, probably, probably about 5k. And then on the high end, depending on, you know, how much you want to spend, I mean, there's, <laughs> there's probably no cap on the high end how much you could spend on um, getting, building a company here. But in terms of the necessary documents themselves, I would say that's probably going to cost you about 5k. Additionally, and you probably, I assume I've spoken to others who have told you this, but when you do start a company like a Kabushigaisha, you do have to have um, 5 million yen or roughly 50k US um, in a bank account in order to do so. So there is that kind of upfront money that you'll need in order to actually get the company started. But there are kind of, you know, there are ways of going about the whole process, despite everything being Komakai, there are ways of kind of getting around some of the little loopholes um, if you're creative. <laughs> And I think that's the case, frankly, anywhere in the world, in any industry all the time. There's, there are always ways around some of the, um, the barriers that exist, but you kind of have to play the game and then, <laughs> um, you know, bend the rules a bit. So anyways, it's, it's completely possible for anyone who's interested in starting a business in Japan. It can, it can absolutely be done, uh, but it will not necessarily be easy. It's probably the easiest way to put it. Great. Thank you for laying that out for us, honestly, yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, especially with your transition to moving your business online, you've been much more active in terms of content creation. We spoke a little bit before this mm-hmm. interview, and you, you mentioned that it's been a little bit of a learning curve in some ways. So would you be able to tell us a little bit more about what your approach to content creation is? Yes, this is probably relevant. When you work as a PT, you really don't have to create Technically, you don't have to create content. You basically work with clients. You, uh, sorry, you do, but not as much as you do in an online space. You work with clients. They see results. You know, they go to the office or 
hang out with friends and they tell their friends about their personal trainer because you guys spend time together, especially face to face, you're able to develop a kind of relationship, like a real in-person relationship that will then often lead to referrals just because you guys spend a lot of time together and then they'll go spend time with other people and talk about what it is you're doing. Uh, in the online space, it doesn't quite work the same way. The people I work with get um, like honestly incredible results, but the, the, the relationship is a little bit different than it is when you're meeting people face to face. So we're, while referrals definitely happen, and that's definitely a, a, a big part of the business, it's, it's simply different than uh, working face-to-face -face as a personal trainer. So as it relates to creating online content, what I've found is since I went fully online, like probably January-ish last year, what I realize now is that so much of the business is making people aware of the fact that what it is I do in this space is not only... Uh, available, but is in fact probably a better option than a lot of the conventional options people have been presented with, like you know joining some group fitness studio or hiring a personal trainer. Those things are great, and I, I don't discourage people from doing those things, but in many cases, people would be better served having someone who actually sits down and looks at the big picture like we do in the coaching space and then really maps out how to get them where they're trying to go as opposed to joining a spin class and then just hoping it all works out. Again, no hate on spin classes. It's just not as specific, right? So I think that that has been the most interesting change um, that's required just the most time and learning. And it's involved having MailChimp email campaigns and that's, you know, nurture campaigns. That, that's its own animal. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, lead magnets. And it's, it's kind of thrust me into the world of marketing, which prior to... 2020, I had never paid any real attention to. I'm active on social media. And, you know, I like Instagram and Facebook and stuff, but I never really had to buckle down and, like I said earlier, create a lot of structure around those things. And now that's very much a necessary part of what I do. And so in my case, I've, similar to starting a company, I've hired a lot of specialists to help with a lot of different things, whether that's creating copy or helping with the nurture campaign or web designer, the guy to help with graphic design, et cetera. And in my case in particular, I've found a lot of those people online through services like Upwork and Fiverr, freelancer, stuff like that. So that's been my experience. Content creation has become extremely important because that's how I now regularly engage with people because I'm working largely from home. So I don't, with, unless I'm creating content to engage with people who might particularly, who might be interested in what it is I'm doing, I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily in an office where I see a bunch of people and can talk to them about it or, or anywhere else. So I kind of have to create that content and then engage with people in that way. And then about more specifically about content creation, I've just found that obviously this is kind of content creation 101, but creating value really matters. And value is different for different people. You know, for Instagram models, value is a picture of them looking good. Um, and then for others, it's a picture uh, with some statistics and then a, you know, a, a, a blog-like post on Instagram or on LinkedIn or whatever. And it just depends on who your audience is and what they're kind of drawn to. But I think in my case, uh, I've found a, a reasonable amount of success in creating 
uh, value for the people that I work with. So just addressing the needs of those who are in what I would call my kind of target demographic. And yeah, I found that to be to be reasonably successful, but I say reasonably because I'm not a marketing guy. <laughs> so there's so much, I, I regularly, you know, communicate with people who are in the marketing space to pick up hints or tips or, you know, have them look at what I've done and say, you know, what can I change? But it's not my background. It's not what I specialize in, but I realize now it's one of the biggest elements of the business because the service itself, the service itself is excellent, um, but it'll only serve people if they know about it. Yeah, definitely. So is there any difference between how you tailor or structure your content as to whether it's geared towards Japanese people or expats in Japan? Ooh, good question. Actually, no. I basically gear all of my content towards native English speakers, and it's actually not specific to Japan. Some, I would say uh, some of it is and some of it isn't, but none of the content I make at this stage is specific to um, native Japanese people living in Japan. It's essentially all for English speaking people. And then some of it is specific to Japan. And so and what I mean by that is some of it is specific to basically foreigners living in Japan, but most of it is just general to English speakers. Yeah. So then you mentioned your target demographic a mm -hmm. little bit ago. Who is that yep. for you? Perfect. That is basically 30 to, I would say, 50-ish year olds who are you know, living, living anywhere in the world. So again, not specific to Tokyo, but who are relatively time poor and are interested in <clears throat> getting into the best health they can, given the constraints that they have with work. So I don't work with college students I don't necessarily specialize with elderly populations. Um, I, I basically focus on working with people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s who are working really hard and are committed to getting good results, especially it relates, as it relates to work, but they don't have the time or the bandwidth or the knowledge or skill sets to really take care of their own health. So then they hire me and I step in and say, great, you've already got all this great stuff going on in this space. Let's figure out how we can, like I said earlier, carve out some areas for improvement, given what we've already got to help make progress towards, you know, whatever your goals are, weight loss, less stress, et cetera. So yeah, that probably that age demographic is where I work most with people. I'd say between 30 and probably 50, 55. And how did you go about kind of discovering that as your target demographic? Ooh, great. That's a great question. This actually is very relevant. So when I was in, I'm 34 right now. When I was in my twenties, I was much more focused on looking awesome naked. And, and I think a lot of young people share that feeling or that sentiment. Like, frankly, people want to look good. It, I don't really know anyone who wants to look bad, whatever that means for you. Like everyone's got a different definition. It's very subjective of, you know, what good or bad looks like. But frankly, I don't think I've ever met anyone ever who wants to look bad. It's like everyone wants to look good based on whatever their own definition of good is. For some people, that's Arnold Schwarzenegger. I want to be massive and strong and whatever. For others, it's, if I'm, you know, guys specifically, I want to look like Bruce Lee, lean and whatever. And then for women, it could be, I want to look like this actress or this person, whoever it is. And again, that's highly subjective uh, for, for each person. So I think basically when I was in my 20s working as a PT, I was much more focused on the aesthetic 
elements or kind of the optics of health and wellness, which is having a low body fat percentage, maybe having six pack abs, looking good with your shirt off, et cetera. Um, and now that I'm 34, all of that stuff still to an extent matters to me and to the people I work with, but it's not as important as I think, frankly, having energy and like feeling good. And then additionally, people want to look good. So I think that the reason I, I've, my demographic is what it is, is because I, as a person have also transitioned from that more early 20, mid 20, late 20 year old. I just want to look hot and awesome all the time to, yeah, I'd love to look, I, I want to look really good, but I also want to feel good because without feeling good, like what's the point of all this time I'm putting into work um, and all this money I'm making, if I feel like crap every day, it's not worth it. And most people in their twenties just don't, it just doesn't work that way. You're not like your average 25 year old isn't like, Oh my God, I'm so burnt out from all this work I'm doing. Like you're, you just start, you just started working. It's, it's a little different when you're in your mid thirties or mid forties and you're doing it for a decade or two, and it's really starting to weigh on you. And then you've got kids and a mortgage and, you know, all kinds of other responsibility, aging parents, whatever. So there's just so much more responsibility that I think it's laid on a lot of people um, as they age. And then, then it becomes more relevant to look at health more holistically instead of just exercise a lot and eat great food. It becomes, all right, there's, there's just more, more involved. So the simplest way to put that is as I have over the past 10 years from 24 to 34, as I have matured as a person and, and in the industry, my target demographic has changed because I just simply now resonate more with what it is the people I work with are experiencing. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. I feel like you gave a lot of answers to this question already in our conversation, but do you have any other advice that you would give to a foreigner who's hoping to start a business in Japan? Anything mm -hmm. else come to mind? I would recommend someone who's interested in moving to Japan and starting their own business to, I'll try to run through a couple things. One, obviously do your research. <laughs> so, you know, do the due, due diligence necessary. Um, is there a market for what it is you want to do? Um, is it overly saturated? Is it completely new and blue ocean? And then after that kind of research component, is there a way you can try it without the cost, the overhead of actually coming over here and you know, renting a space and trying to make it work. And if there is, do that first. I'm a pretty big fan of the idea of the lean startup. Um, cannot remember the other's name, but the kind of concept of having a minimum viable product and then just throwing it out there into the market and seeing how the market responds to it. So I'd say if you are living abroad and you've got this idea and you, you know, want to do this really cool thing in Japan or this really innovative startup concept, do your research. And then, you know, immediately following that, I would just see if you if there's any way you can make it viable without necessarily packing your bags and moving yourself over here to get it started first. If there is, explore that. If there isn't, then I would recommend you start building some relationships with people who are um, in that space or a relevant space to kind of learn more about what hurdles you're going to hit when you get here uh, so that you can avoid those. <laughs> That would basically be it. Do your research, try it from wherever you are if you can, and it's like online based. If it's not, then just I, even before you get here, start building those relationships. That could be through LinkedIn, it could be through 
blogs, Facebook, whatever, but I would start to, to build relationships. And then as, as quickly as possible, start to have conversations with people who have started businesses here and just kind of use those people as mentors. You might be the wrong person, but kind of utilize those people's experiences um, for yourself so you can avoid some of the rather obvious kind of potholes that many people who have started companies have hit. For example, like starting your own company on your own versus hiring a lawyer, absolutely hire a lawyer. <laughs> those kinds of things. There are probably a, a number of those and they're probably industry specific. You might need a license of some sort to do whatever it is you want to do. And, you know, it, you may not be aware you need that license even through your due diligence. So it might be helpful to find someone who's doing a similar business or uh, the same business and simply ask them. And then they'll tell you so you can kind of prep beforehand and save yourself the time and frustration of landing here and getting ready to execute the business. And then suddenly you don't have a license that you need and it's going to take three months to get it approved and kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. I know that there are at least a few industries that require licenses in Japan that we wouldn't necessarily be aware of in the U.S. So definitely exactly. at least ask, ask someone, ask someone. preferably yeah. ask several people. But... Exactly. In, in your specific industry, yes. you can. Exactly. So do you have any examples from your own experience of communication breakdowns that you think have been due to culture specifically? I have a funny story, but this is, this is not so relevant to probably the actual question you're asking. So when I first started PT, this is 2012 we're talking about, I was training a guy from the States uh, outside of a municipal gym in near Shinjuku. And this Japanese guy who was watching us, bald guy, bunch of tattoos all over his body, came over and asked what we were doing. And at this time, I had been in Japan for about three years. My Japanese is pretty bad, but I was able to explain to him that I'm doing a personal training session. And, um, and he was obviously interested. So I said, hey, this is my, these are my line details. You can shoot me a message if you're interested. So the guy shoots me a message and we end up working together. He ends up coming on as a client. So he ends up being maybe my fourth client at the time or fifth client or something like that at the time. No, sorry, but more than that. But anyways, one of my early clients and <laughs> in terms of communication, it turns out as we were training, I realized he was missing bits of his fingers. And I was like, this is, there's like, there's no way I'm working with a guy who's actually the Yakuza. This can't actually be happening. And then it took it was a small thing. Somebody, I think, cut him off or something when we were in the gym walking somewhere and he just unleashed <laughs> this person verbally. And it was in that moment when I, I kind of just saw what I knew to be somebody in the episode. <laughs> and, and it was, it was really, it was just really, I wasn't afraid or anything like that, but it was just very interesting. It, it suddenly, I suddenly realized like, wow, this is really happening. This is, <laughs> um, I have now managed to pick up a client who actually in some form works in whatever this organization is, we know to be the Yakuza, which is obviously quite mysterious to virtually everyone. So uh, we, he was a very nice person and overall we had a, uh, a very nice relationship, but in terms of um, communicative, uh, again, not so much breakdown, but in terms of interest, interesting communication, my relationship with him became one where um, we worked together for probably about two years total, extraordinarily nice guy, but there was always this, <laughs> because I was aware of what he was involved in, it created this kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, maybe tension that never went away. And then we eventually stopped working together and I kind of wished him farewell and, you know, he's off doing his own thing and 
that was one of the more interesting kind of local <laughs> situations that happened with a, a native Japanese speaker, no English at all. But again, that was kind of a tangent that it probably doesn't relate to what you're exactly asking. I think what you're asking probably more relates to in my current role, do I work with people, for example, as a coach, but there are issues with communication because they're maybe native Japanese. I, the people I work with are comfortable enough in English that we don't have issues with communication. That's probably the best way to put it. So I do work with people who are native Japanese, but they speak English well enough that we tend not to have those issues. I have also lived in Japan long enough that I know how to communicate with even Japanese people who don't speak any English in a way that can, this is a bit interesting to, to describe this, but in a way I'm very American and I don't necessarily, I don't often thrust myself into the Japanese space. Even when speaking Japanese, I tend to speak and interact in Japanese in a way that's still quite American. But I think people I communicate with are aware of that. Like, obviously I'm a black guy with dreads. Like I, they're, it's like they're, they're, they're aware I'm not Japanese. So I think the way in which we communicate ends up working because I know how to get across what needs to get across. And I also know how to listen in such a way that the person who's speaking to me, even if English is not their first language, like I often know what they're trying to say, even if they're not using the right words to say it. And that's just a skill that's been developed over living here long enough. So there have never been the simple answer to the original question is that there have never been any major communicative breakdowns as a result of me being American, speaking with somebody who's native Japanese. But I would imagine, and this is a bit of a, of a, I'm venturing a guess here, that for others who work, for example, B2B, and they've got a company and they're American and they're working with Japanese people, there are probably a lot of um, barriers that, <laughs> that they end up running, kind of running into. And, and actually in saying that, I've thought of one example. So this is, and this is perfectly relevant. Several years ago, a friend and myself decided to take what it is we've done with Sogo Fitness, because he was one of the directors, the co-directors there, and build it into a company that could service uh, organizations in the same way we kind of service people for free within Sogo Fitness. And so we named that CoFit and CoFit Movement specifically. So we ended up kind of hiring a bunch of trainers to do a bunch of different things, whether it's um, yoga or mindfulness or actual training. And we still have clients within that COVID uh, company that service, sorry, we still have trainers that service different clients even now through the pandemic. And that's, I mean, that kind of, that's kind of sub COVID still operates, but it's not something that I'm putting a lot of time and effort into in, in that sense. Uh, but it kind of, it services people that it services and it is what it is. As we were building COVID, this is the relevant part. As we were building it, we ended up having, we ended up communicating with big organizations, like big multinational organizations that were quite Western and then pretty big organizations that are very Japanese. And the there weren't so much communication breakdowns, but like I said earlier, there were just so many incredibly komakai things that we ran into. And fortunately, the partner I was working with is a guy named Leo. Um, he is ethnically Japanese, but he was born and raised in Canada. And his Japanese is just much better than I than mine because he you know, grew up speaking a bit of Japanese. So having him as a partner in that process was invaluable because whenever we would have to deal with the companies that were very Japanese, they didn't have anyone who was fluent in English. And so a lot of the correspondence that, that went on just had to be done in Japanese. And for me, speaking Japanese is somewhat comfortable, but business Japanese is not comfortable. 
uh, and written Japanese is awful <laughs> for me. Um, it, like when it comes to uh, regular communication, it's fine, but anything business related, there's just there is just too much kanji I don't know. So long story short, having a Japanese partner or at least a partner who's very comfortable in Japanese made that process a lot easier. And we would not have been able to work with several of the companies we did had I not had Leo as a partner because I just would not have been able to do it. Mm-hmm. That definitely makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. So then just in the interest of time, I just wanted yes. to see if you had an answer to what you would share with somebody who was going to Japan to work or to start a company and they didn't have time to learn much, what would you teach them or what would you encourage them to learn before they got to Japan? So somebody wants to move to Japan and just work in Japan, what's something I would encourage them to learn before mm-hmm. coming here? The, the most relevant answer absolutely is Japanese. <laughs> you can learn the language. If you can learn Japanese prior to coming to Japan or at least as much as possible, whatever you do in Japan will be exponentially easier than not knowing Japanese. And to take that a step further, if I were fluent in Japanese, written and spoken, the business I operate now for expats would absolutely be offered en masse to Japanese people. Um, and I'm, I am certain <laughs> it would it would thrive because there, there aren't a lot of people in this space doing this in Japanese. Um, there are a few, and there's actually kind of probably one, maybe two foreigners I can think of who are entering that space. But if you can speak Japanese, it really just opens doors and it will make life a lot easier across the board. That being said, Japanese is one of the hardest languages for native English speakers to learn just because of how different it is. You go from reading letters to basically hieroglyphs. <laughs> it's a very different thing. And so if there were something I were going to go back and do more of, like jump back 12 years and kind of redo it, and, um, I would have done exactly what I did in the beginning, which was get some books from some friends, study really hard on my own, um, get here, study pretty intensively for about six months, except I did that on my own. I would have just continued studying more. because I probably studied pretty hard for about nine months uh, in total, three months before coming here, because I, I didn't have much time between getting the job and coming here. And then about six months after I got here, I would have continued studying more consistently to just level up my Japanese because now 12 years later it's good but it would be a lot better if I had spent more time learning it earlier on. So are there any questions you feel like you didn't get to go into enough detail on or anything you wish that I had asked you? No I have really liked these questions. I think we actually got through all the questions you sent me. So I would say overall no I I think if to just kind of jump back into that last one um, if you're interested in coming to Japan for business no matter what the business is I would just be aware that for knowing the language is helpful and just knowing the, the reason I say language is because there are a lot of nuances around the language as it relates to th- especially things that are unspoken, whether it's simple things like bowing or the whole business card exchange. Like there's so many little cultural things that are relevant in Japan to just help people feel comfortable. So I think learning the language is a really good start and that will help you quickly kind of adapt to the way they do things here, especially if you will be working with people who are native Japanese. If you are moving to Japan and the business you want to start relates to specifically to expats, then it's not so relevant to spend a tremendous amount of time learning Japanese because it, it may not actually matter all that much for you. So yeah, I would just encourage you to immerse yourself as much in the culture as you can and 
And on that note, it's, it can be difficult to do that when you live in Tokyo because so much is available to you in English. So I think I actually consider myself quite blessed to have come to Japan and not been living in Tokyo in the beginning. So for about a year and a half, I lived in Aichiken, which is where Nagoya is, one of the larger cities in Japan. And where I lived for the first year, there were virtually no native English speakers. And so I really had to, I had to speak Japanese and that kind of sink or swim environment allowed me to get a lot better at Japanese a lot more quickly. Whereas if you move to Japan, you, you know, you move to Roppongi, you're not really, and you don't need Japanese at the workplace and you don't have Japanese friends, you're never going to learn Japanese. And there are plenty of people who have been here for a decade or two or three who don't really speak Japanese because they don't need to. And that's okay. But again, it will limit your experience. So as much as you can immerse yourself into the culture, I think you'll get so much more out of it in terms of business, but also very much in terms of uh, your personal experience. I 100% agree with that. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I really enjoyed the conversation and I'm excited to share it. Thank you, Lydia. This is great. It's been really nice meeting you uh, like this. And I really look forward to meeting you in Japan when you land and get situated. I really hope that you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Success Japan podcast. To learn more about Menya Hinga, his work, and the content he's putting out, be sure to check out the links in the description of this episode. If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and share it with a friend, colleague, or connection on LinkedIn to help spread the perspectives and information shared in the podcast. And please remember to go ahead and subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're using, and also leave a rating and review if you enjoy the podcast. If you would like to support the podcast financially, please check out my link to the new coffee page to keep me well caffeinated and making content. As always, feel free to email me at businesssuccessjapan at gmail.com if you have any other questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes or interview topics. Also, be sure to reach out if you would like to contribute as a guest on the podcast to share your own cultural insights into doing business in Japan. I'd love to hear from you directly, so if you'd like to leave a voice message, you can find the link to do that in the description as well. But for now, remember that the more you learn, the more confident you will become as you explore all of the opportunities Japan has to offer you. Until next time, mata kondo.